Today is the first Sunday of the season of Lent. Uh, Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter. And in that 40 days as a church, 40 days as Christians all around the world, what we're doing is we're understanding and, and kind of focusing on our mortality, that we are going to die. And, but dying for us as Christians is a good thing. Even uh, Jesus himself tells us this in Luke 9, 23. He says, he said to them, if anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so this is our practice of intentional focus of dying daily. And dying daily is difficult. Am I right? But the idea is for us to die to our sin, becoming more and more alive to Christ. We want to see Christ formed more and more in us. And so it's a season of really a confession and a repentance and awareness. And just like Simon was saying today so well, it's a time for us to stop lying to ourselves and deceiving ourselves and really to live in to the truth and the reality of Christ. And so this idea of denying self, John picks up on this on John 3.30 when he says this, he being Jesus must increase and I must decrease. That's really the explanation of the seasonal Lent, the decreasing of self and increasing of Christ in us. So we're starting that today. It's leading up to, uh, to Good Friday and then to Easter and it's leading us into the hope of Jesus. And then also with that, uh, today we're continuing our study through the book of Romans. Uh, we stopped right before Advent in November of last year and went through our Advent series and we had six weeks of standalones. And now we're picking back up into the book of Romans. And so if you missed any of that, you can go back to our website, you can go to YouTube and watch it, or you can just grab your Bible and read the first nine chapters and you'll be all caught up. But for some of you, you were like, hey, I want a little bit of a summary. So I'm going to summarize Romans 1 through 9 in one sentence. You ready? Might want to write this down. You can't save yourself, trust Jesus, or your toast. I nailed that, right? I mean, that's it. You probably want a little bit more than that. So um, just a little bit of what's going on in the book of Romans. Uh, there's a church there about 2,000 years ago. And uh, Paul's writing that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing a letter to this church. The church was full of Jewish people who uh, understood the Old Testament that was pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. Messiah just means the promised one of God to, that would come and fulfill all the promises of God. And so they became Christians. And there were also Gentile people there. And the Gentile people, a lot of paganism and some wild stuff going on, they also uh, learned that Jesus was uh, the good news of the gospel. And they trusted Jesus and they were saved as well. So you had Jewish people there. You had Gentile people there as well. And so what Paul's doing, he's addressing both Jews and Gentiles and humanity, us as well, saying you can't save yourself by your works, by your looks, by your righteousness of your own, by anything like that, not by your religion, not by your might, not by anything other than you must have faith in Jesus. You must trust Jesus. Or as I summarized earlier, you can't save yourself, trust Jesus or your toast. It's the same thing. So Paul said this in Romans 1, 16, and I want to kind of, this is the, the anchor of the series. You'll see it on the screen, Romans 1, 16 through 17. Highly recommend you commit this to memory. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Who is everyone? Everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I, I love that line at the end. It's actually a quote of the Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. Not the righteous shall live by their good works. 
Not the righteous shall live by religious works. Not the righteous shall live by morality or anything like that. No, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. And I think that's what our text is about today. It's about faith. And not just a uh, spoken faith, not just a idealistic faith, not just a religious faith, but a real everyday faith. Because what our text is going to show us today, when it comes to Jesus, you're either trusting or tripping, one or the other. And that's cheesy. Here we go. So if you get a Bible, go to Romans chapter 9, and I want to show you that. Romans 9, that's where we'll be today. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach uh, from the Bible. And so we have them in English and Spanish up here at front, also at center point. And you've got a smartphone. You can find a Bible on there, I'm sure. Romans 9, we're going to be the, the last part of it. It's going to, we're going to start in verse 30, and then we're going to get up to speed on that. All right. Verse 30, are you there? If you know anything about Romans, Paul's always asking these questions, and so he asks a question right here in verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. They didn't pursue it, but they got it. It is, that is, a righteousness that is by, what's the word? Faith. But Israel, Israel, God's chosen people of the Old Testament, who pursued a law, notice the difference. They pursued a righteousness. The Israelites pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Now think about it. The Gentiles, if you know a little bit of their history, they're non-Jewish, and so the Old Testament would be very foreign to them. Uh, they didn't grow up with the covenants of the Old Testament. They didn't grow up with the laws of the Old Testament. They didn't grow up with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the stories, none of it. And so what Paul's saying right there, they weren't pursuing any of that. They weren't pursuing the law, yet they attained righteousness by what? By faith. The Jews, the Israelites, they, they had the covenants, they had the laws, they had the, the sacrifices, the stories, and they were trusting the law, actually trusting the law, trying to keep the law to have and attain a righteousness. But did they succeed? And the answer is, no, they didn't. Why? Well, the law of the, of the Old Testament is good. We can't just throw out the law, right? The law is good. The law is showing us God's character, us God's nature, uh, but the law is there to kind of show us as human beings how to relate with God. Also, we're supposed to keep the law perfectly. And what the law is going to do, it's going to turn us to someone who kept the law perfectly. Who's the one who kept the law perfectly? Who's the one that's promised in the Old Testament and comes in the New Testament? And so the law is like a wall that we run into over and over and over, turning us around back to Jesus over and over and over. And so that's, that's the reason why. Tim Keller said this about this section of the text. He says, the ones who knew the most about God did not come to know God, while the ones who knew the least about God came to know God best. The ones who most wanted to be righteous ended up dead in their sins, while the ones who least wanted to be righteous ended up holy and blameless in his sight. That's scandalous, isn't it? That's grace. That's how grace works. Verse 32. He says, why? Why, why, why did Israel not get it? Why, why, what's going on with it? Why? Because they, being Israel, did not pursue it by, what's the word? Faith. But as it were based on works. They, they weren't going after it like it was faith-based. They were going after it like it was works-based. It's up to me to do it. If anyone's going to save themselves, it's going to be me. That's the idea. They had stumbled over the stumbling stone. So now he's talking about a stone, a rock. 
As it is written, he's going to take uh, two quotes from Isaiah and put them together. As it is written, behold, this is God speaking, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So when we read that, we're like, what is he talking, a rock? Like, what, what does he mean? Look at this last line. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who's the him? Is that from the Old Testament? Yes, that's, that's, that's uh, Isaiah from the Old Testament. And so Jesus is being spoken of in the Old Testament as the rock. Paul's trying to get his Jewish brothers and sisters to acknowledge from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. Don't be tripping over him, just trust him. Don't stumble over him, because that's the only way you can relate to the Messiah. You either trust or you trip. You either, you either run to him or you fall over him. That's the, the point of Jesus. Jesus will be offensive if you're trying to save yourself. Because you think, I can do it myself. You th- and you'll think, I'm doing it myself. Why can't other people do it themselves? And it doesn't work that way. It's by trusting Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, wh- why, why did they stumble over Jesus as the Messiah? I don't know. P- perhaps because they were so focused upon the law and, and they were so focused on the rhythm and routine of the law that they thought they could save themselves. And uh, they, were, they were working for God's grace and not from God's grace, p- perhaps. I mean, think about us as, as humans, modern day us. Why do we stumble over Jesus now? Well, it's, it's because ha- that's how religions work, right? When you, when you think of religions, religions are works-based. Every religion and every cult today is workspace. Islam, Buddhism, think about cults like Mormonism and Jehovah Witness, and some of you are like, oh, you called that a cult. It is. <laughs> I'm not being mean. I'm just being biblical, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's a cult. And it's all based upon what you do, how you earn. And so we trip over that as well. We think, okay, well, if, every, if, if that's the way humanity works, then that must be the way Christianity works as well. And so we we just stumble over, over Jesus because of our religion. And, and for some of us, religion comes easy. For some of us, religion comes really hard. Think about it. For some of us, religion comes easy because we have our life together. There's many of us that are very intuitive, and we have our life together, and religion comes really easy because it's a set of do's and a set of don'ts, and we do do's well, I said it, and we don't do, or we don't do the don'ts well as well. And we're disciplined, and, and we can, we got enough God, Jesus jargon in our lives to where we can God, Jesus jargon people to death, and we're just good at religion. We're absolutely good at it. And you know what? If that's you, I, I want to give you a little bit of a warning or maybe a little indicator. If that's you, you can come across very smug towards other people who don't do it very well. You can come off a little bit inappropriately judgy to where you're just all, well, I would never do that. I can't believe they're saying that. I, and you just, you don't take immaturities in, in account that people may be at a different age and stage in their walk with Christ. Why? Because you're probably just really good at religion. Some of us, though, are terrible at religion. Am I right? Like, we try, but we're just, we're just no good at it. Like, we're all the time trying to be religious, and you're trying to uh, live your life and be religious at the same time, and you are absolutely exhausted. Am I right? You just can't keep of it. And what we do is we try to Jesusify everything that's kind of worldly. Like we'll just take the things of our life and we'll just try to Jesusify them. Like, you know, um, for a very small instance, you ever like watch a movie or hear a song and like you, like, you know, Kanye West says something about God. You're like, look, he's a Christian. 
You watch a movie and someone says God in there and you're like, oh, look, it's Christian. And we just Jesify everything around us. Or we just try to make Jesus the garnish on our plate. Our plates are full of our worldly lives. And we're like, oh, wait a minute, I got to be religious as well. And we try to find a little Jesus garnish to go on. I'm like, look, 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 I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm being a Christian or whatever. And we're just, we're just, not, we're just not good at it at all. We're exhausted. The point of it is, Paul's calling from Isaiah, Jesus, a stone. And the reality is, if Jesus is the stone, he is the one we are to build our lives upon, him and him alone. Not us trying to do something. Not us trying to earn God's favor or earn God's love. Jesus talks about this, if you remember, on the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? He got to the last part of it. He says something like this in Matthew 7, 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the, what's the word? On the rock. Remember what Suman said earlier? Not be just hearers of the word, of doer of the word. Jesus is saying this as well. It's like building your life on a steady, strong foundation. You can build upon it. You'll be wise. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That means life storms can come and they'll beat you up pretty good, but you, you, will, you will stand. Why? Because you're built upon the rock, Jesus. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. There's two different foundations you can build upon. Perhaps... And this is a good time to do this during the season of Lent, to really evaluate your life. Perhaps you say, hey, I trust Jesus, but you feel like everything's just crumbling around you. Everything's just falling apart right beneath your feet. Now, I'm not talking about the run-of-the-mill suffering and hardships of life. That happens to every one of us, am I right? Life is hard. Wear a helmet, am I right? I mean, it's just tough. But I'm just talking about, like, you think, like, you got enough religion in your life to hold everything together, but it's just crumbling at your, at your feet, Jesus is either the foundation we practically build our lives upon or we will stumble, bumble, trip, and fall over and over and over. Even in this, uh, what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about at the end of your life. Great is the fall. That's what Paul's talking about as well. Look back at verse 33. This quote, he says, And it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to, what's the word? Shame. Shame is the worst, am I right? There's usually three things we, we suffer with at times. Fear, guilt, and shame. For me, I get a case of the shamies sometimes, and the shamies are the worst. Anybody else get the shamies in here? And then you go get a... You go get a tube of Pringles and you just work through that tube of Pringles and you just ate a tube of, pr uh, of shamies. Does that make you feel better? Well, well he's not, somebody over here does. So, you know what I'm saying? The original. Don't want the French onion. Don't want that one original. Uh, it's the best. But in this shame he's talking about right here, he's talking about humiliation. He's saying when you die or when Jesus returns, whichever one happens first, you thought your life was built upon Jesus, but it was built upon your works it was built upon trusting you. It was built upon trusting your own religion. And when Jesus returns or you die, when you're face to face with your maker, you're going to be put to shame. That's what he's talking about. You're going to be humiliated. 
forever, for all eternity. That, that's, that's what's at stake right here. But if you trust in Jesus, you will not be put to shame. When you see your Savior, you're going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You're going to hear, hear those words, enter into my presence, son. Enter into my presence, daughter. Why? Because you built your life, you trust it upon Jesus. That's what he's saying right here. Chapter 10, verse 1. So he says, brothers, pay attention to this verse. Transition. Brothers, my heart's desire. Hold that phrase. Heart's desire. And prayer to God for them is that they, so he's praying for Israel, that they may be saved. Okay. Who wrote this letter? Paul, okay. What does Paul want in this verse? What is his desire? Because desire means want, correct? What does Paul want in this verse? Just, just yell it out loud, I don't care. Israel saved, right? He wants his brothers and sisters, he wants his fellow Israelites to be saved, okay? He wants the lost to be found. He wants the damned to be acquitted. He wants the orphaned to be adopted. This is what he wants. Now, question. How do we know this is really what he wants? How do we know that this is as true as the text says, heart's desire? And how do we know this is what God wants for him to want? How do we know those things? Meaning, when you and I say we want something, when you and I say we desire something, when you and I say we have a heart's desire, how do we know we actually want that? Because people can say they want one thing, but live in a whole different way, and it says, no, you don't want that, you want this. You see what I'm saying? I don't want to lose you on this. Are you, are you following me? Give me a little nods. If not, I'll just take another 10 minutes and illustrate it again. Cool. You got it. Okay, you, don't want to get, you want to get out of here in time. All right, cool. So how do we know that Paul wants them to be saved? Well, if you go back and look at Paul's prayers, if you look through the New Testament, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament letters. You look, Paul's praying for the lost over and over and over. I don't have to throw a bunch of references up there. Remember earlier in Romans where he said, I wish I could give up my salvation, which he couldn't, for my brothers and sister Israelites to be saved. Remember that part? Remember that line? Okay, cool, cool. So you can look throughout the New Testament and say, hey, you can look by Paul's prayers that he wants them to be saved. And we could, you know, anchor that in God's word. Boom, we know that God wants people to be saved, right? And then you can look at Paul's actions. Paul's choices and actions, what was he doing? Well, he's just out there getting it. He's out there sharing the gospel. He's out there telling people about Jesus. He's out there proclaiming and preaching all the time. So much so he got beaten, so much so he got stoned, so much so he got thrown into prison. And so how do we know what we want is actually uh, what we really want? How do we know what we say we desire is actually what we are really wanting in life? And it's by this, by our prayers, and by our actions. Are you following with me? Give me a little nod. I want to make sure I don't lose you on this. A little nod. Because we can say we want a lot of things and people talk a lot of talk about like, I want this and I want that. But when we look at our prayers and action, we're saying, no, no, we want something else. So let's do this. Let's talk about our prayers. How do we know that our prayers are right? You ever thought about that? How do I know like this is the right thing to pray? I'm going to give you three ways. Number one, the Bible. That's, that's, that's just number one. 
period, to start there. The Bible, when our prayers align with God's word, his wills, his whims, his ways, we know that we're praying the right thing. Number two, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so the Holy Spirit's gonna give you confirmation. It's hard to explain what that means. You're just gonna know in your soul of soul, heart of heart, guts of guts of like, I've lined it up with God's word and I know I should, right? Like the Holy Spirit's never gonna say, yeah, 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 go rob that liquor store. That's cool. Never gonna say that, right? Wrong spirit. Holy Spirit's going to be like, yeah, 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 go get three wives. It's awesome. No, he's not going to say that, right? Because we lined up with God's word, and now the Spirit's going to confirm. And then the third kind of checkpoint is talk to good brothers and sisters in Christ you trust. Okay? One, two, three. Got it? So when, when we're doing that, we're like, hey, my prayers are, as best I can, aligned with God's will, God's ways, God's whims, and God's wants. This, this is a good thing. Now, let's look at our actions. Do our actions match our prayers? This is where it gets a little tricky. Because I think sometimes if we're not careful, we're liars. And we're liars to ourselves. No one lies to you more, more than yourself. We, me, you, us, we lie to ourselves all the time. We say we want certain things because we know that's what we're supposed to want. As a good Christian, I should want these things. But our prayers, or the lack thereof, and our actions may say we want something else. For instance, we pray for the lost, am I right? But do we ever share our faith? Man, God, God dinged me that on the other day. I got some people in my family who are lost, and I was praying and praying and praying for them, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit was like, dummy, you got the word, go tell them, right? Because my wants is for them to be saved, but by my action it says, no, I'd rather, I'd rather uh, not trouble them. I'd rather... I'd rather, you know, be in a, you know, make sure that things aren't weird. I'd rather, you know, like, that, that's, that's hard telling people about Jesus, right? Pray for a godly spouse. Like, maybe you're single. You, we pray for a godly spouse for sure. If we're Christian, we want a godly spouse. But are you, in action, being a godly individual? Pursuing holiness. Are you willing to wait for someone the Lord sends you, brings your way, puts before you? Or are you just dating any chump or chumpette out there? Pray, we pray for a good marriage. Like if you are married, pray for your marriage often. Am I right? We pray for good and godly marriages. Then when it comes to action, we're sabotaging them all the time. With, with, with deceit, with lies, with inactivity, with not paying attention to, with not spending time with, with keeping our lives so busy and so crowded and all that. We're not caring for one another well and praying for one another well and just being with one another well. We pray for our kids to know and love Jesus and be formed into Christ's likeness, don't we? And yet we're teaching them something else when we tell them their sports activities are more important than church. And all their little side projects are more important than church. And, it's, and you know what? When it comes to Jesus and the things of Jesus and the things of your life, well, I mean, you, we're just going to have to, like, Jesus, will be, he'll wait for you. We're going to go do these other things as well. And I know it's, it's, I live a real life. Sometimes there's just things you have to miss for on a really rare occasion, but it's over and over and over. We're teaching our kids something. We really are. Listen, I'll tell you honestly, when it comes to parenting outside of the silly sovereignty of God, you will never take your kids any further than you're willing to go as a parent with Jesus. It's true, right? We may say we want, but we want something else. We want to be healthy, right? We think about our bodies and we want to be healthy, and yet we treat them like garbage. 
may say we want discipleship. I want to be discipled, and I want to have Christ formed in me, and I want to learn more and grow and be, be more like Jesus. And yet when it's tough, because discipleship is, is tough, am I right? It, it, it's dying. We, we, we tap out. We're like, oh, where's, where, where, where's my Ozempic for that? I, like, this is too hard. I just rather, I just rather, like, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just rather make this, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about, sorry, scratch from, delete that. Not, that was dumb. We want a shortcut. I didn't mean that. My apologies. Send me an email. I'll ask for forgiveness. I'm an idiot. We want to be shaped and formed more like Christ and more into his image in every day and every way ways. And yet we spent more of our thought, life, energy, more of our resources and more of our times on being comfortable, entertained, and sexy versus godly. We want to have deep, meaningful relationships, yet we avoid community at all costs. We never open our homes to people. We never open our hearts to people. We never open our calendars to people. We want this church to be great and do great things, and yet we, we rarely serve it. We rarely give to it. We rarely pray for it. We want to commune with God more and more. And when I say communion, I mean being his word and being prayer and being silence and just being his presence. But we've got these phones that we got to tend to. And, and I, I got to check my emails and I, and I got to check the social medias and see what's happening on MySpace. Tom's lonely. And, and, and you know, I, 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 yeah, man. Yeah. We, I got, I, you know, the other day, I caught myself. A couple days before Lent, I caught myself. I haven't had social media for a long time. And I caught myself on Apple News because I have an Apple phone because I love Jesus. And so um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Look it up. It's in, it's in Second Opinions, chapter 3. And so I, I caught myself scrolling through Apple News. And I, I, I was just, it's like I had an out-of-body experience. I was watching myself do it to where I wasn't even looking. I was just, I was like, this is stupid. I deleted it. I was like, if I'm going to scroll through anything, I've got, you know, the little ESV app on my phone. It's like, I'm going to scroll through God's word or whatever, because it's just dumb. I was like, what a waste. Of, I want to be godly, and I'm just looking at garbage. It's like, this is dumb. I don't know why I'm doing it. We, we, we want and desire a quiet life, because that's what the Bible says, and a quieted soul, and willingly... We add so much distraction, because we think distraction is good for some reason, and chaos and drama into our lives. But we want quiet. I can go on and on and on. This is all of us. We say we want something, but when we look at our prayers, or they're the lack of, and we look, look at actually how the choices we make in life, we really don't want that. We, we just don't. We don't desire what we think we do. Now, now, yes, listen, some of you are like, probably might be struggling because I'm talking about prayers. You're like, well, we just pray to God and God does. You're right. There are times when you just pray to God and a miracle happens. You pray to God and supernaturally, he just, bam, he just does his God thing. And they're like, yay. But most of the times in our Bibles, in our life, we see we pray to God and then we go get at it. Am I right? Uh, Philippians 2, check that out. And so there are times when we pray for the lost, it's like, okay, God's like, great, I hear you. I'm the one that opens hearts, and you go open your mouth and tell them. I'll open their ears. That's what it means to trust God. 
Tommy Nelson said this, God is in control, but don't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. What we want, I think what Lent really helps us with, is that we want our lives to be, as Eugene Peterson says, congruent. We want our prayers to match our choices. I think that's when we know our heart's desire. Paul talks about his heart's desire. I think that's what we do. When our prayers match our, our choices. Because when they don't, then it means our life is not congruent and we're actually wanting something else than what we're saying we want. So here's what I want to do. I know sometimes I get up here and I talk and I talk and I talk and I talk. Because I know. Sometimes we just need a space to think for a second. So I want to create that space right now. Don't worry, I'm not finished preaching. I got more. But just where you sit, just pause and just think about it. I'll give you a minute. Where's my life not congruent with my prayers and my choices? Just think about it. I'll be here. I want to write it down. I love the season of Lent. It gives us the opportunity to do weird things like this that are good for our souls. How good does it feel to sit in silence for just a moment? Just think. It's good. It's so good for us as humans. Just a process. I don't know what the Lord has shown you, but I want you to hang on to it, okay? In the, in the end, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll work through some confession and repentance. Just if there's something there, maybe not. Maybe you're perfect. Just hold on to it. Just hold on to it. Now, in that text, Paul's specifically talking about evangelism, the lost. He's going to be talking about that in, in the coming weeks, and so I'll, I'm, going to, I'm going to put that on the shelf. We'll come back to it. Verse 2. For I bear witness, or bear them witness, being Israel, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What does zeal mean? Zeal means passion excitement, drive. How would I illustrate that? It's kind of like when you think zeal without knowledge, it's kind of like um, a Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> Hear me out. Hear me out. You're all in the same boat with Dallas Cowboys fans now. Your season's over. You know what it's like. Uh, Dallas Cowboys have a knowledge of like, hey, we have our, our zeal. Hey, we have a great team. They just lack the knowledge of like they're really not that great. Uh, as a matter of fact, I saw this stat the other day. I thought this was a great stat. I thought it was pretty good. (laughs) 
ty at gracepointvegas.com. That's my email. <laughs> so uh, Israel had this great zeal, great like, like excitement, almost fanatic about God's law, but they just didn't have the knowledge behind it. Zeal is a great thing, but if it's not anchored in knowledge, it's just not enough. And that's kind of our modern vernacular when you hear people say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're passionate about it. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are really into it. And that's actually from the Bible. It's called uh, Second Nonsense, chapter 3, verse 2. It's just, it's not there. Some of you are like, where, where is that? It's not there. Paul's saying you can be zealous, you can be passionate, and you can be dead wrong. That's what he's saying right there. Uh, and for us, you can have a lot of God talk, and your God talk can just be wrong. There's a lot of God talk, a lot of church, church-isms that we say that are not in the Bible. Uh, God will never give you more than you can handle. And some of you are like, it's in the Bible. Keep reading. It says more. God helps those who can help themselves. No. No one can help themselves. God only helps those who can't help themselves. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is actually in the Bible. But boy, oh boy, do we rip it out of context. I can throw that football because I can do all things. Christ is strength. No, that's not what it means. It's contentment. Or I, you know, I can be David and beat the Goliath in my life. That's not how that works. That's not how that works. And so we can say a lot of nonsensical. We can be passionate about it. We can yell and scream about it and be just wrong. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 3. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and establishing are seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Meaning this, when he says righteousness of God, what is he talking about? Righteousness of God means the perfect uh, perfection of God or the right standard of God and being in right standing of God. But I would take the righteousness of God and take it one step further. It's just not a concept or a thought. I would say the righteousness of God is embodied in, that was your lot, Jesus. <laughs> embodied in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, Jesus made himself to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, we're becoming this, the righteousness of God. We're becoming Christ-like. We have the record of Christ. We have the standing of Christ before the Father. And, and the problem was that they were so blinded by doing the law that they missed Jesus as the Messiah. They missed miss Jesus as the Savior. They were so worried about their own personal righteousness. They wanted God on their own terms. They wanted to do God their own way. We do the same sometimes, right? We, we want to do Christianity. We want to do following Jesus our own way. And so what do we do? When we want to do it our own way, we, we fill our lives with, with works-based religion and Christian jargon. If we can do works-based religion like they were doing and use a lot of Christian language around it, well, then that's how we want to do our Christianity. That's how we do it. Why do we do that? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because religion, works-based faith, allows you to relate to God's word rather than God himself. Let me say it again. Religion or works-based allows you to relate to God's law rather than God himself. And as human beings, for some reason, we would rather relate to God's law 
than God himself. For some reason, I don't know why we do this, we think doing God's law is easier than relating to God himself. And we do this as humans. We get into a situation and we say this. We say, just tell me what to do. Tell me what the do's and the don'ts are and I'm good to go. Why? For some reason, when it comes to our relationship with God, we think the do's and the don'ts, just tell me what to do and what not to do and I'll figure it out along the way. We think that's easier or better. We think that's what saves us and it's not. We just want a relationship with God's law and not God himself. And I'm just telling you from God's word, no, no, no. We want a relationship with God himself because that's where you'll be justified from. There's, there's one of my favorite parables uh, that Jesus gives. It's in Luke 18. You've probably heard this. I'll put it on the screen. Two men. There was a Pharisee and a sinner, a tax collector. Tax collectors, worst of the worst. That's us. Two men. I don't know. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. That's us. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, now watch the eyes flow. God, I thank you. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so basically, it's like he wasn't talking to God. He's just talking to the ether out there. He's just talking to the law of like all the things that I am great to do. He wants other people to hear how amazing he is. I, 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 I. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, and he's speaking to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's personal, because he understands the law. And he understands when I look at the law, ah, God, I need some mercy. When we look at the law, what do we need? When we look at God's word, what do we need? If you're reading God's word, never demanding or asking or requesting or begging God for mercy, you're not reading it right. Turn it upside down, try again. You're just not getting it. Have mercy on me. 14. I tell you the truth. This man went down to his house. What's the word? In that terminology, it means right with God. The sinner, the tax collector, you and I. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we need to relate to God, not just to his word and his law alone. Now, here's the thing about the book of Romans. Paul can give a little bit of an impression of like, well, I guess God's law doesn't matter. I guess I don't even need God's law. Uh, we should just rip God's law out of the Bible. Is that true? And the answer is no. Verse 4, our last one. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does that mean? That Jesus is the end of the law. Did Jesus come to throw away the Old Testament? No. No, Jesus came to fulfill the law, to do the law perfectly on our behalf. Paul's not saying that, there, that the law is ended. No, G, what Jesus ended was the law as a way of righteousness, a law as a way of trying to be saved, a law as a way of being acceptable and right with God. When Paul uses the word righteousness here, he has a specific meaning. He doesn't mean moralistic. He doesn't mean uh, morality or being a good person. He means to be in right standing with God. And so God has accepted me. God has adopted me. God is drawing me into new life. So the question is, we're coming around the corner now. What gives us right standing with God? The law or faith in Christ? And the answer is faith in Christ. But when we say faith in Christ, what do we mean? 
So those are just words. Are we just believing something? Are we just being zealous about that? So we need knowledge. Our faith is anchored in knowledge, and so that would be in Jesus. So we need to know who's behind our faith. That would be Jesus. So what do we know about Jesus? What do we have faith in Jesus about? That Jesus was some good guy, good teacher, some guru, some religious figure? No. Faith in Jesus is grounded in the knowledge of who he is and what he has done in actual history. And now, how do we obtain this knowledge about who he is and what he's done in actual history and how he will complete our lives? Well, how do we find out about Jesus? We find out about Jesus and gain knowledge through God's word. And this knowledge that we have or gain, is it just a set of facts? And the answer is no, it's personal, it's relational, it's not religious. When we say we know Jesus, we're not just saying we know some things about him, it's more than that. Real quick, in the book of Genesis, you don't have to go there, I'll show you on the screen. Adam and Eve, uh, they were together, and then God said, don't eat of the fruit. They ate of the fruit, sin happened, and then you get to chapter 4. In chapter 4, they've been kicked out of the garden. And this is what it says, Genesis 4.1. And Adam, what's the word? Knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Funny statement. What does no mean right there? New mean? Is that just information? When a husband and wife know each other? Well, no, it's talking about sex there. And this informs us. Why? Because sex is to be covenantal. Like, it is, uh, within marriage, it is man and woman vow before God, covenantal for life. It's covenantal. It's intimate. It's relational. It's personal. It's vulnerable. Somewhat, kind of, sort of, in our text, this knowledge is to know Jesus, to know the righteousness of God. And so that means it's covenantal. It's intimate. It's relational. It's personal. It's vulnerable. So here's my question. What is your faith? Is your faith works-based? Are you trying to work it off for God and try to get your righteousness and try to get salvation through being religious? That's dead. Or do you know Jesus? Personal, covenantal, intimate, relational. That's where your righteousness of God will come from. That's what Paul's talking about. As I said from the beginning, you can't save yourself. Trust Jesus or your toast. Here's what I want to do. Throughout this message, perhaps God has called you out on something. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is showing you something. Each and every Sunday we do this, but especially during the season of Lent, what a great opportunity to quiet ourselves and be before the Lord and in our hearts and minds, whatever he's showing us, confess, Lord, that's what I've been doing. I've been saying I want this, but I haven't been living that way. I've been trusting all I've been doing and Jesus not trust you. Confess that to him in your heart and mind. Repent. Father, forgive me. I have sinned. Father, turn my heart away from that and trust Jesus again. That's what we're going to do right now. So if you would, just in the spirit of prayer, maybe just bow your head, close your eyes. Maybe throughout this message, throughout the word, God has shown you something. Talk to him in your mind and your heart about that now in silence. And then I'll pray and we'll go to the Lord's table.
Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for your work in our lives, your spotlight upon our sin, our idolatry, our apathetic ways, and the lying to self. Thank you for the Spirit, the empowerment to turn us back to the Father. Jesus, we thank you for making this all possible. That you have ended the law as a way of righteousness to be right with the Father. Jesus, help us, help us, help us, guide us to build our lives upon you and nothing else. Give us eyes to see the sand beneath our feet if it is there and set us upon you, the rock. Jesus, may we not leave here crushed, but may we leave here refreshed, turning back to you, knowing that your grace is good today. Knowing that you're the one that saves those tripping, that you're, by your grace, you will raise us up. Help us to trust in you today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.